This is Omo. Everybody, welcome to Omo. Thanks for joining us. We've got an awesome episode today on the Baroque period. First up, Sarah Peck, an amazing Baroque style maker and a person who does setup. She's out of Philadelphia. She's going to talk to us about the period. After that, we've got an interview with Juliana Soltis, who is a professional cellist and plays in the Baroque style. You're going to hear her music throughout this episode. She's doing the Bach cello suites and they're beautiful. She was on tour that did have to get put on hold. You'll hear her mention that, but um, later she promises to be back out touring once uh, we get back to normalcy. You will probably hear a few strange things in the episode about the world we were predicting. Uh, All of this was recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, so some of the timeline doesn't fit anymore. But guys, we are looking forward to bringing you normal, normal episodes of OMO. And uh, we look forward to getting back to a normal, normal world with you. You guys stay safe out there. was music by Juliana Soltis. We'll hear more from her in a bit, but first, how do we need to set up an instrument to play Baroque? What are some of the things we need to know for this tiny subset of our musical community? How is it fundamentally different from our current styles? Join me and Jerry with Sarah Peck from Philadelphia, a Baroque setup wizard and gamba maker. Welcome, Sarah Peck. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Jerry. Uh, Sarah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself for us, please. Well, you already know my name. My name's Sarah, and I probably started my interest in violin making, you know, almost close to 20 years ago, but it didn't take very long for me to get really interested in the Baroque. So that's why I went to school in England to learn how to make gambas, and I've never looked back. Yeah. I've been working with Baroque now for well over 15 years, and I'm now living in Philadelphia, which is great, and just continuing to do my work with uh, a lot of Baroque people. Do you find that most of your clients come locally, or are they from all over the world? I wish they were from all over the world. That'd be great. <laughs> They're not completely locally. A good amount of them are. A lot of them are the clients that I had via working for Bill Monocle in New York. And then with my time out in California, they've kind of, you know, they're definitely across the country. And I have gotten some European clients, but definitely not super local. It's more wide than that. Very cool. You and I had some talks before, and one thing, one theme we kept going back to is that Baroque style. It's it seems like it's geared toward community, yeah. Versus a lot of the modern playing styles is more geared toward individuality. Yeah. The uh, the Baroque instruments are made to blend. They're to make chords. They're for music for a party to dance to, and not just sit and passively listen. Can you add any more to that? Definitely communal is a good way to to describe it. It wasn't just for dance. There was also, you know, a lot of church music. I guess you can think of it as maybe a Baroque composer might have thought of himself more as a vessel 
or the medium or the vehicle. Whereas when you start to move towards the classical period, um, a composer might place more importance on mankind himself and his work. So that's kind of the two major components between, I think, for Baroque and classical. Baroque is definitely more about group and community and whether it's in the church or in the home or at court. Would you say there was less of a, a, a straight line between what we would consider today art music and what we would consider pop music? Were things a little freer at the time period or was there a delineation like there is today? You know, of course, the Baroque period lasts quite a long time. You know, we're talking like 150 years and probably every 50 years there was some big change. So, you know, it's kind of hard to say. I'm not quite sure if there was a big delineation, but I think there was definitely a lot of innovative thought. Um, it probably happened in a lot slower pace. You know what? We didn't even back up and clarify. When we are talking about Baroque period, Yeah. Uh, around what years are those? I think it's somewhere like between, you know, 1590 to 1750. So late Renaissance. Yeah. So why did Baroque style fall out of fashion? And why is there renewed interest today? First of all, it took about 30 years for it to completely, what you would call, fall out of fashion. And I guess it's just like all you know, periods of both uh, musical, artistic styles, they, they come and they go. But, you know, the in the mid-18th century, Europe began to move towards classicism. It's a hard word to say. Um, which is mainly based on, like, the influence of classic Rome and, and Greece. And so it started to seep into, you know, both the art and music um, and literature during this period. So, you know, this is probably like the height of the Enlightenment era. You know, and so these ideas became um, very structured and it was all about having structural clarity and order. And so I think the music started to go away from in Baroque music. There's lots of layers and, you know, a lot of fanciful stuff and and kind of you, you could say it's sort of all over the place. Although I'm sure that musicians are probably scoffing at that description right now, but, you know, just easy, like it, it kind of went from what they considered disorderly, which it's not, but you know, these are what they're thinking of the time to something very structured and ordered. You know, you've got the ideas of the time, you know, Newton's physics, like everything, this whole clarity was seeping into everything in society. Um, you also see that composers started to be very, because of this um, structure and clarity, they also wanted to start writing down, you know, the dynamics of a piece. So the composer wanted to be in control of uh, when you trilled and, and when you got louder. And, and, and that's kind of the first time that you see that. In the Baroque era, a lot of it was improv. Okay. So a piece was given to a, a musician. And if any embellishment or interpretation was to be done, it was to be done then. It wasn't written down on paper. So those are kind of some of the things that kind of definitely you see the transition from Baroque into classical. And so when you have these... When you have a society that is, you know, looking at something very structured, you know, the, the music followed and it, it kind of Baroque sort of fell from, from fashion in a way. Tell us your thoughts on the literal translation of this word, Baroque, which means misshapen pearl. Well, I mean, as you know, the Baroque pearl was actually, a, it was a thing. It was actually a pearl, a real pearl. Okay. That you still could actually get, you know, to pee on a piece of jewelry. But I think that that term Baroque is definitely born out of the classical era. Nobody went around in the 16, 1700s saying, oh, let's get together and play some Baroque music. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely something that came out of the classical era. And again, you've got these people that the new Fandango 
thing is to be very structured and, and very classical in your thought, Roman and Greek. And so, of course, they're going to say oh, that Baroque music was bizarre and misshapen. Everything's all, there's no structure. Everything's all over the place. Ah, okay. So I can see why they called it that. Yeah, that's where the term was kind of coined originally. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it seems like there's a lot of correlations uh, in my mind with jazz music because of mm-hmm. that openness to interpretation. It seems like they're creating unique moments every night with the same piece. Yeah, definitely. As opposed to what came after where like, we're repeating the exact same piece every single night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you look at a good harpsichord player and how they're interpreting music, it's going to be different each time because they're following uh, a figured bass line with notation of how to form the chord. Right. I think the correlation between jazz and Baroque is, is pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of relates to your earlier question of like, why is there renewed interest? And, you know, the renewed interest has actually been, you know, for the last hundred years, you know, starting with Arnold Dolmetsch in England and kind of reaching its peak in the seventies. And, and now I think it's getting definitely a resurgent. And, and I think part of it, and this would be a great question for actually a musician like, you know, Joanna or something like that. But, I think that people really enjoy that part of Baroque music, the history and the guessing maybe of, of how it's interpreted. And you're, as a musician, you're left to that interpretation, which I, I think could be quite exciting for a musician to be in control of, you know, what they think the piece means to them. And it seems like you already covered uh, why it fell out of style, unless you think there's anything else to add. It's sort of just like, why does everything fall out of style, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like because something new comes around and, and it's usually something that goes together music art architecture economical political you know i mean here we have you know we're getting into the era of the french revolution and mm-hmm. even though the patrons definitely still supported the arts you know mozart and all those people you know they had patrons the the common people actually wanted demands for music also and so you know with anything i think things are you never stay forever. I sure. think so. Music is definitely one that constantly changes. What happened with strings? When we started the Baroque period, everything was gut. Definitely. And it was made from usually sheep gut. Is that right? Yeah, sheep gut. Yep. Okay. And then we had a new technology that came along. People figured out you could wind a string with a thin piece of metal. Right. Wire. And what would that do? How did that change the sound? Well, what that did is it enabled you to get a lower note without having to, so you had to, to, in order to make a low note with gut, you've got two choices. It either has to be very thick Mm -hmm. if you have a smaller string length, or you have to extend it and make it very long. As in, you know, you can see that in uh, fewer bows in Kitaroni's, the really long necks. So by putting the wound string on it, and it was usually just a single wire, you were able to get that lower sound without having to extend the length of the gut string or make it thicker. Okay. So you have to realize like cello before about probably the late 1600s, 1680, 1690, I'm not a musicologist. Okay. Before then, the cello really was kind of uh, not such a prominent instrument. There was no solo repertoire. Oh. It was used in dance music and kind of like, you know, the continuo side. 
But then you've got this wound string that comes about. And now all of a sudden, um, not only can you get that lower note, but you can get articulation. I don't know if you've ever seen a violone, but some of those fixed strings are really hard to articulate. As listeners, what we like to hear is space between notes. That's what produces that melodic line that we love so much. And when you've got a thick string that gets all garbled, you cannot hear that space anymore. So now you've got this wound string that can do both. Now you've got cello repertoire. So you see the rise in the cello right around the same time where the string technology is really starting to become widespread. And if you today are making a gamba, Mm -hmm. are you still going to do a wire around on the low string? Yeah. So nowadays um, with the string technology, especially like Drasto and everything, um, for the lower three strings, they're completely wound. Okay. But for the... The third string, well, the C string, which is actually the fourth string, you've got choices. You can go with a completely wound string, or there's definitely um, the old-fashioned string, which would be this one with a single wound, it's called the demi-filet, a single wound wire. So you kind of have two choices. For So when people say gut strings today, they're getting gut strings, what does that actually mean? So when they're talking about gut strings, there are some groups that play completely on gut. There are some more so on the gamba side, consorts. Um, of course, I'm not up on every single Baroque group out there, so I could be wrong. But most people, when they get gut, we're talking like, let's take violin. We're talking a wound G. So that could be anything from an olive to a passione um, to a Dan Larson string or Toro strings. And then usually the D, A, and E are all gut. And that would be the same for cello and viola. Sometimes viola and cello, the D string is, can be hard for somebody to get used to. So sometimes they'll use a wound string for that. But eventually people go towards all gut except for that very, very low string. So with strings, you touched on this a little bit before uh, with needing a thicker string if you're going to go with all gut. How does equal tension fall into that? So hoping that question was not going to be. (laughs) (laughs) It does play into it. And there's definitely, I might get in trouble for saying there's people who geek out about it. Like there's equal tension and uh, there's not equal tension. And, but I I do think it affects to the players. And so they kind of can make string choices that feel good underneath the, the hand. And that's where equal tension comes in. But that's like a complete, People can really, really get into it. I, I don't. I, if, a, if a player wants to do something with tension, I kind of leave it up to them to start to research. And I leave it up to the professionals like Aquila and um, Dan Larson to really get into what you can do. They've got calculators and everything on their website about um, creating equal tension. But I usually leave that up to the musician. That's probably smart. All right. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much information on equal tension and so many different opinions. It does sound different. If somebody's trying to make uh, a set of instruments sound like authentic Monteverdi, yeah, it's going to sound really different than if someone's playing Bach. Definitely, yeah. And I think this is why another reason why people like it so much because they get to sort of research into that history about how to make it sound authentic. Of course, we're never going to know because nobody was back there during that time to know what it really sounded like. 
for all we know, it didn't sound so great to our modern ears. Like a misshapen pearl, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I had this conversation with a woman when I first got here to Philadelphia. The orchestra was doing a Purcell, an early program. And I got invited to a sort of um, meet and greet with the composer. And of course, I raised my hand and I was like, so are you going to be playing in 415? Oh. And, of course, and the answer was no. Um, and then I asked her, I said, well, you as a conductor has done both. Do you feel that the music is interpreted differently when you play it in 440 than in 415? And she was like, oh, yes, definitely. Like it, it makes it makes a difference um, about this music to sort of, you know, play quote unquote, in the historical practice. Of course, we don't, 415 wasn't really like a standard or anything like that. But what's important about realizing about Baroque is that the music was, the music and the instruments and the bows, they were all done together. Everything influenced each other. And the music was a direct, you know, uh, result of what you could do with the bow and what you could do with the strings. And then, you know, it's sort of like a big circular canon between musician, luthier, and composers, like ongoing. I think most of our listeners are on track, but just to clarify in case anybody's lost, um, when we're talking numbers like 440, 415, the pitch of A is 440 hertz. What is it? (laughs) Okay. And so when you bring it down to 415, you're lowering the pitch a little bit. Yes, you are. (laughs) Which kind of brings me to my next question. When a musician comes to you and says they want to experiment with uh, different tunings, score to Torah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that make you cringe a little or are you like, yeah, let's do this? Yeah, it doesn't make me cringe. It's uh, definitely more interesting. The thing about Scordatura is uh, most most Baroque players are are not going to do a lot of Scordatura. I think those that are more into like Renaissance and stuff will, but most people will be like 392, 415, 430, 440. And then there is some Vivaldi that's in 464. Really? Yeah. So Scordatura is more like, you're alternating the pitches. And what that means for me is that I have to pay a little bit more attention to string gauges and how they're affected at different pitch and to make sure that they'll tune up and down to the right note that that instrument wants. So it's, it's really, when, it, when you talk about score to tour, it's string and of course making sure your pegs work. Those are the two major things. So if we are trying to develop an instrument or retrofit an instrument that serves that Baroque style, that more communal purpose. Uh What are some of the goals that we're trying to achieve? Like if you were to uh, make an instrument from scratch? Yeah. Yeah. How do we accomplish that? Like make it really of that style? Well, I mean, I think the arching is probably one of the biggest differences, at least in my experience, that's what I've, I've learned. Um, they, They, for some reason they produce with the mixture of the gut strings, um, it makes for a, a better instrument. The lower arches don't seem to work very well when you start to put gut strings on them. Okay. So you're talking about the, the top and the bottom plate of yeah. maybe a traditional violin. Definitely. Um, yeah. the, the more arch they are, they tend to work better. Yeah. In my experience, definitely. Yeah. So you're talking like Steiner models, Amadis. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the early strads, you know, were higher arch too. But when you when you take like one of the low arch strads and try to put gut strings on it, it doesn't seem to work as well. Do you think string tech of the day is still influencing that? My understanding, and it might be pretty limited, is that 
the strings that were available to musicians in Italy were very different than the strings that were available towards uh, to musicians in Northern Europe at the time. Yeah, it's it's possible. Um, I mean, I guess it's not just a, a clear cut answer between okay, make a high arching. You know, everything was different then. You know, um, they were making instruments to suit the music that was being played and the bows that were being used. So it was more like a, a collective thing altogether, more than just the strings and the arching. It was it was kind of everything, and I think that's why there's a lot of a development because as the music changed, the instruments changed along with them. Very cool. Today, sometimes you have people come in that w- want to convert a violin to Baroque style. Yeah. Uh, tell us some, just some of the basic introductory things that you would do to make that change. Okay. Well, you know, when someone comes in saying that they want to convert it to Baroque, uh, first I kind of just get to know what the majority of the stuff they'll be playing. You know, are we... Have you entered the Juilliard program? Are you going to be paying just Baroque all year long? Or is this a subset of your modern? So you start to try to get to know the client and, and what they're playing. You know, um, um, are you going to stay in one pitch? Or is this instrument going to kind of be 415, 430, 440? So I just kind of try to get a general sense of what's coming up for them, what they're playing. And then you go from sort of... Um, have you tried it already without a chin rest and some gut strings? And do you have a Baroque bow? And you kind of go down that way. And that's when you kind of get a little bit more about whether they might be needing a new neck graft or things like that. You just start to talk about that and see how they're playing and everything. Some people are like, yes, this is way too thin for me. It's uncomfortable, but I really like the way this instrument sounds. Um, and you just, you, you, you tailor it to what, they need at the moment. So how does neck shape influence the way a Baroque musician interfaces with their instrument versus the way a, a modern player interfaces with the instrument? Well, the, the main thing is, you know, you don't have a chin rest. And so the way violinists and violists, it's, it's different for cellists. It's not such an issue with a cello. Um, there's no kind of such thing as a Baroque cello neck. I usually don't say you need a Baroque neck for a cello because they move up and down the finger, um, fingerboard and neck differently. But for a violin and a violist that has to hold it, um, balance it on their shoulder, going up is not the problem. It's my understanding that it's the coming back down. So you have to kind of walk in like a crab-like fashion, fashion all the way down the neck. And, and sometimes you need a little bit uh, more wood to do that. Um, if it's thin, like... I shouldn't say thin, but it's a different, so more of a V shape with modern because they had the, they had the shoulder rest. Now you've got this, I mean, this chin rest that's holding the instrument. So your hand is freer to slide up and down. You don't actually need it to go down, but in the Baroque, um, that's how they facilitate it up and down. You tend to need a little bit more wood to do that. That makes sense. So you, you don't have as much to grab onto up with your chin and your shoulders. So that hand has got to, yeah. uh, do some more work to get away from your body. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's my understanding. Yeah. And then at the same time, you still want it not to be too heavy. You want it to be a lightweight neck. Mm-hmm. So we use traditionally ebony wood for our, our fingerboards. Mm-hmm. You guys do a little something different for the Baroque instruments. 
Yeah, we do like a thing, what's called a fingerboard core. So there's many ways to achieve that. And of course, back then they, there was also, I don't think ebony was such a, like an easy commodity back in those days. Um, you have to talk to someone about the history of ebony. It was expensive, even more so than it is today. Yeah. And so you find a lot of fingerboards, historic fingerboards are made completely out of maple. So you've got a maple neck and then a veneer. But the way I make them now is I make a core. So I make the inner part out of a light wood, which is usually spruce. And then I surround it with uh, ebony. So I do an ebony veneer and then I do ebony sides. Mm-hmm. That way, um, you know, because I'm still, it's, it's interesting, you know, and this is kind of what I love about Baroque is back in the day that that's exactly what these makers were doing, really tailoring to the musician. And I feel like this is one example where I'm kind of tailoring to the musician that we have now. So a lot of musicians, you know, coming from modern that might switch to Baroque, they're kind of used to feeling that ebony on their fingers. And so that's why I kind of put it back. I don't have to do ebony sides. It's more just of a, a feeling and a response um, to make it more comfortable for the player. I could do just the ebony top and maple sides. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The pitch or the projection of the instrument is made up in that wedge. It would be very heavy and cumbersome to make it completely out of ebony. There'd be a lot of work. What type of scoop do you have in the board when it's a veneered board? Same as a, same as a modern. Okay. Yeah. The, the arch of the, the curvature of the actual core, I make slightly less. I make like, a, I have a 41 degree uh, curvature. And that's because by the time the veneer actually goes on, believe it or not, it brings it back up to 42. But I follow all the practices of modern, you know, when it comes to scoop and everything like that. Once you put it on, you're going to do some light. You still have to plane, do a very light planing and make sure you've got that scoop even after mm-hmm. you glue the veneer on. Very cool. What are you building right now? Right now, I'm getting ready to build a smallish seven-string viola da gamba. Is it just your own plans or are you using a specific model, like how I would build like a Strad copy? What's so great about Gamba is that, you know, the sizes are all over the place, but a lot of them were destroyed when they fell out of fashion or turned into cellos. So we don't really have a lot of historical vials to base off. Um, There's definitely the most popular ones, the French and the English, but it does let you make your own. Like I know a really great maker, Gabby Guadalajara, and she doesn't copy. She makes her own vials, which I think is great because this is what everybody else was doing back in the day. I think it's fantastic. And so with this instrument, what I'm going to do is um, because I had a choice of wood that I wanted in those dimensions, one of the templates that I had was this Claude Puree. And it's, it's a it's a nice model. It works well for being a small seven string and not so large. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of follow the outline of the Claude Perret. Um, I'm going to follow different making techniques. I'm going to make it without a mold. So it'll be made in what we call the air. And then I haven't decided if I'm going to actually carve a head or not. I, I might carve a head. I might not. But, but the arching, I'm going to try to think a little bit differently with the arching. So I, I might try two innovative well, they're not really innovative things, but two different things that are not the norm. A, do you guys remember that article from um, the bass guy in Australia where he came up with a new sort of bracing system for a flat back? Yes. It looks like two curves on either side. Yeah. Yeah. That happens with viola de gambas also, where the center separates and you get deformities. 
I might try that with this one. And then for the top, I think I'm going to try to follow more of the knowledge of a violin making. Um, a lot of vials kind of, they don't have much of a recurve. So I might play around with that a little bit more. So there's a, I think I'm going to take some freedom to kind of, you know, not be so stolid and sort of the historical. Oh, that's really cool. It's fun stuff. Talk about jazz. Yeah. Will you send us a picture of it when you get started? I will. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Fun. How do we find you, Sarah? I do have a website. It is definitely, it's getting revamped at the moment, but the old one is up. And so that's just my, uh, it's sarahwpeckviolins.com. That's P-E-C-K. And you can reach me there. Um, I'm in Philadelphia. So if you come through Philadelphia, please stop by. And you can do Baroque conversion or you can do original builds. Yes, both. Yeah. And I also do modern work. It's not like I don't do that anymore. Yes. I still can do modern stuff. You're just fantastic at everything. <laughs> can I make one comment, though? Like, I really love the fact that this whole entire uh, podcast is kind of almost definitely like a misshapen pearl. You're kind of all over the place. <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> Omo, the Baroque version. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. Yeah, thanks, guys. This is fun. Yay. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, take care. Yeah, you too. Coming up next, we've got an interview with Juliana Soltis, professional cellist playing in the Baroque style. Hi, Homo sapiens. Uh, just wanted to let you know that today we're being brought to you by an app called Encoda. That's spelled N-K-O-D-A. Encoda is a sheet music subscription service. So it's like a streaming service? If you've got an iPad or a smartphone and you don't want to be carrying around this random piece of music and this random piece of music, it's all there. They've got millions of pages, thousands of titles, hundreds of publishers. It's all right there ready for you. Yeah, it's really pretty amazing. Uh, they'll, they'll give you a free trial. I'm going to sign up for that. Um, that's N-K-O-D-A. Uh, this is the, the future for musicians, you know, for, for people that are, are working for a living with instruments. Um, everything you want to find is right at your fingertips, and this app is a really great example of that. Now, what I like about this option as a music shop owner, so I've got lots of music books that I sell to the kids, but I don't have the floor space to have those thousands of titles. It's much easier for me to stock the things I know are gonna sell all day long. And then those little pieces of music, they're available in the ether, thanks to Encoda. Yeah, and the, the music shops of old are all closing, you know, so you, you order stuff and maybe get a used edition in the mail. But if, if you want really nice editions from Boozy and Hawks, Baron Reiter, Chester, Novello, etc., um, this is the way to go. I'm pretty excited about this app. Yes, and uh, they've received praise from Sir Simon Rattle and Joyce Dinant. <laughs> Didonato. Didonato. <laughs> so uh, try them out. Go to your local um, app provider and <laughs> get yourself a free trial. Uh, app Store, that's what I'm trying to say. Go to an mm -hmm. App Store today. Get your free trial. Try out Encoda or visit Encoda.com. That's N-K-O-D-A.com. Thank you.
welcome back, everybody. This is Arcoda. We have got Juliana Soltis, who is on a tour right now playing Baroque cello music. Yeah, she's doing a Bach off script. Um, this is an album she's just released, and we've been listening to her lovely music throughout the episode, and you guys should look her up and check the album out, too. You can download it at julianasoltis.com. Is that right? Oh, it's actually julianasoltismusic.com now. Good, good. You're in Los Angeles right now? I am. Do you still have days ahead of you on the coast out there? I do have a schedule that's supposed to take me um, all the way up the West Coast and then out to Honolulu through the end of April. But um, obviously, though, like everybody else, I've been watching the the COVID-19 developments very, very closely. And um, there is a chance that I might have to suspend the tour, but um, only out of an abundance of of caution, both for the health of my audience and uh, for their enjoyment of the music. You want people to be able to have a good time. Yeah, of course. So uh, we've been talking today about Baroque style, and I mean, I'll just get right into questions with you. We've got a question here. How is it different playing Baroque, and what do you love about it? What drew you away from modern classical to Baroque music? I think what really drew me away from modern performance or, or contemporary performance style and into the world of historically informed performance was the moment when I realized that it made such a huge difference, not only in how I experienced this this music, this historic music, um, but how the audience experienced it as as well. I think that what's really great about historically informed performance, about performing in a Baroque style and on Baroque instruments, is that it has this power to help audiences forge a deeper connection across those hundreds of intervening years. Okay. So it's, it's being more authentic with the repertoire you're playing by playing it as it would have been in, at that time period? Yeah, I like to shy away from that word authentic, um, which I imagine, you know, you can understand as, as, a, as a luthier because we know that there was not just one way of making a violin yeah. or, or making a cello um, or, or of making a bow or rehairing a bow. It could vary so wildly from, from one city to another, certainly from one country to another. So the word authentic can be presumptuous about how you're going about it. Yeah, the word authentic can can actually be detrimental, I think, to this idea of historically informed performance, which is really, for me at least, it's about freedom. It's about rediscovering that there were all these different ways that we could we could play this music and that, you know, outside of the canon of great composers, Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, there are all of these other composers who, who populated their world and and that we want to explore that and we want that freedom again to engage with the material in more than one way. For folks that are listening that maybe don't know what we're talking about when we talk about Baroque, I'm sure it's been covered earlier in the episode, but uh, you're performing on an instrument with strings that are gut and don't have modern synthetic core, and uh, you're performing without the, the trappings, the fittings that are associated with contemporary instrument setup, which is made to handle higher tension. How do you... See, finding a, a luthier, a luthier that that understands 
what to do to help you and what's your journey been like there? Did you have your, you had your cello converted after you bought it? I did have my cello converted after I bought it. And that's just one of those like cosmic kismet universe things that when I, I, as a young modern performer, I was just out of school um, that uh, out of school with my bachelor's, I should say. So I was 22 um, that I, I came upon this beautiful antique instrument and was able to purchase it so that then when I, I started playing in an historically informed way and, and in particular focusing on Baroque music, I already had the perfect instrument and I just needed to have it restored to its original setup. That's great. That's a leap of faith. Totally to yeah. have it semi-disassembled <laughs> and then put back together as it would have been in the 60s. Sixties. Yeah, but you know, I always tell people when I'm I'm moving to a new town, and I've I've moved a lot. You know, in, in the arts, we all move around quite a bit. Um, the first things I do are are find a vet, a, a good veterinarian for my my greyhound Hello. for rain. Hi, rain. I, <laughs> um, he would say hi, but he's sleeping. <laughs> And and then I find a luthier to take care of of all of my my instruments. I I think that there is a, a disconnect sometimes with modern string players that they they think of their their luthier as someone who who they go to when you pop a seam or you know you find a, a little crack or you know when when the world comes to an end essentially as as we know it. But I I see my Luthier is someone who is an integral part of my music making. This is somebody who ideally understands what it is that I'm trying to accomplish as a musician, what sound I'm looking for, you know, what I what I want my instrument to do, what I need it to do, and who also can communicate to me, you know, when I've reached those those limits, yeah. sort of, of of what I can ask of my instrument. It's um, different things yeah exactly because you know an austrian instrument is never going to be an italian yeah yeah (laughs) that's very true um well i've had some great conversations with you over your your instrument grace about um the ability of the voice of an instrument to mimic or be in the style of vocal music of the time. And you have an interesting, I'm, I'm, I, I didn't phrase that right, but you have an interesting take on the intent of music to, to mimic or work in concert with that. Can you talk about that? Make me sound less like I'm, I'm woo-woo and in the woods. <laughs> no, I think that was a, a great way of, of putting it. Um, you know, somebody once asked me, why do we have instruments? And and I was just stunned for a moment because I thought, well... What's wrong with you? I, I Why do we have instruments? Why are you asking that? And you start to think about it and you're like, oh, why do we have instruments? If people can sing, why do we have instruments? And that person's answer was, we have instruments to mimic the human voice. And when you start to think about a stringed instrument, whether it's a violin or a, or a cello or a, or a viola, a, and think of it as a sort of stand-in for a human voice, your expectation of the instrument changes dramatically. Because if you think about any one person's voice, 
it's not as strong in all registers. Maybe you're stronger in your mid range, or maybe you're stronger up top or on the bottom. Yeah. But you have that wonderful range, and that's what makes the human voice so compelling, and that's what makes singing such a, a, a wonderful art form. And I think as string players, we often want consistency. We want, yeah, I want it just as strong as up on the bottom as up on the top, and and you know somehow going to make that mid range perfect too, and I think in the end, it's it's a little like when you split those notes of an octave equally. Everything just kind of sounds equally. Yeah. So, do you find that um, when you're thinking about making music on a on an instrument set up in the Baroque style, that you have more freedom or versatility to let the instrument uh, speak that way? Is that the connection? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the minute that you start thinking about your instrument vocally, your relationship with it really changes. Your relationship to the notes on the page changes. And instead of looking for just one good sound all the time, you start embracing the variety of sounds that your instrument will make. And you start looking for the things that it likes to do or that it does so beautifully Um, rather than trying to force something else onto it. Wonderful. Well, I I really enjoyed coming out and hear you play on your tour through D.C., and I always love when you come by the shop. Um, Will you let our listeners know where they can find your music? And uh, please, while you're you're on the road, be safe. Don't uh, touch your face, all that stuff. Don't touch your face. <laughs> <laughs> Immediately, I want to touch my face. Um, but um, especially in the event that I do have to uh, suspend and reschedule this last quarter of, of the album tour, you can find my music on all of the usual streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music. And if you're interested in a, a physical copy going old school, of my new album going off script that is also available on amazon.com. Great. Juliana, this has been fun. And thank you for the donuts. You're welcome. (laughs) Well, guys, thanks so much for having me. Wonderful. Perfect. Thank you. Omo is an all luthier podcast produced by Rosie Deloach, Chris Jacoby, Jason Peoples, and yours truly, Jerry Lynn. If you enjoy my buttery voice, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a patron at www.patreon slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. This episode was edited by Jason Peoples, and the music was provided by our guest, Juliana Soltis. Brown chicken brown cow, Jerry Lynn out.
Omo is an all Luthier podcast produced by Jerry Deloach, Chris Jacoby, Jason Peoples, Rosie, myself, Lynn. I am Jigman. Buttery voice. <laughs>